Chapter Two of John Dean of Toronto. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. John Dean of Toronto, a comedy of Whitehall by Herbert George Jenkins. Chapter Two. John Dean's Way. As Sir Lyster entered Mr. Blair's room, accompanied by John Dean and Admiral Hayworth, he was informed that Mr. Bridgman North, the first sea lord, was anxious to see him. "'Ask him if he can step over now, Blair,' said Sir Lyster, and the three men passed into the first lord's room. Two minutes later, Sir Bridgman North entered, and Sir Lyster introduced John Dean. For a moment, the two men eyed one another in mutual appraisement. The big, bluff sea-lord, with his humorous blue eyes and ready laugh, and the keen, heavy-featured Canadian, as suspicious of a gold band as of a pickpocket. "'Pleased to meet you,' said John Dean, perfunctorily, as they shook hands. "'Now you'd better give me a chance to work off my music.' And with that, he seated himself. Sir Bridgman exchanged an amused glance with Admiral Hayworth, as they too found chairs. In a few words, Sir Lyster explained the reason of John Dean's visit. Sir Bridgman listened with keen interest of one to whom his profession is everything. "'Now, Mr. Dean,' said Sir Lyster, when he had finished, "'perhaps you will continue.' In short, jerky sentences, John Dean outlined his scheme of operations. The others listened intently. From time to time, Sir Bridgman or Admiral Hayworth would interpolate a question upon some technical point, which was promptly and satisfactorily answered. John Dean seemed to have forgotten nothing. For two hours, the four sat discussing plans for a campaign that was once and for all to put an end to Germany's submarine hopes. During those two hours, the three Englishmen learned something of the man with whom they had to deal. Sir Bridgman's tact, cheery personality, and understanding of how to handle men did much to improve the atmosphere, and gradually John Dean's irritation disappeared. It was nearly three o'clock before all the arrangements were completed. John Dean was to receive a temporary commission as commander as soon as the King's signature could be obtained. The destroyer was entered on the Navy list as H-4, thus taking the place of a submarine that was missing. John Dean had stipulated that she should be rated in some existing class so that the secret of her existence might be preserved. In short, sharp sentences he had presented his demands, they were nothing less, and the others had acquiesced. By now they were all convinced that he was right, and that the greatest chance of success lay in giving him his head, as Sir Bridgman North expressed it in a whisper to Sir Lyster. A base was to be selected on some island in the north of Scotland, and fitted with a wireless with aerials a hundred and fifty feet high to pick up all that's going, explained John Dean, conscious of the surprise of his hearers at a request for such a long-range plant. Here the destroyer was to be based, and stores and fuel sufficient for six months accumulated. This was to be proceeded with at once. I shall want charts of the minefields, he said, and full particulars as to patrol flotillas and the like. Admiral Hayworth nodded comprehendingly. 
"'By the way,' he said, "'there's one thing I do not quite understand.' "'Put a name to it,' said John Dean, tersely. "'How do you propose to keep at sea for any length of time "'without recharging your batteries?' "'We shall be lying doggo most of the time,' was the reply. "'Then, in all probability, the U-boats will pass over you.' "'We shan't be lying at the bottom of the sea either,' said John Dean. "'What?' exclaimed Admiral Hayworth. "'But if your motor's cut off, you'll sink to the bed of the sea. "'The law of gravity.' "'The destroyer is fitted with buoyancy chambers, "'and she can generate a gas that will hold her suspended at any depth,' he explained. "'This gas can be liquefied in a few seconds. "'Her microphone will tell her when the U-boats are about. "'It's my own invention.' Sir Lyster looked from one to the other, unable to grasp such technicalities, but conscious that Admiral Hayworth seemed surprised at what he heard. "'It's up to you to see that none of your boys start dropping depth charges around,' said John Dean. He went on to explain that he proposed a certain restricted area for operations, and that the Admiralty should issue instructions that no depth charges were to be dropped on any submarine within that area until further notice. "'There's one thing I must leave you to supply,' said John Dean, as he leaned back in his chair smoking a cigar. John Dean chewed the end of a cigar during the period of negotiations, and smoked it when the deal was struck. "'And what is that?' asked Sir Bridgman. "'I shall want a mother.' "'A mother?' ejaculated Sir Lyster, looking from John Dean to the first sea-lord, who laughed loudly. Sir Lyster always felt that Sir Bridgman should have left his laugh on the quarter-deck when he relinquished active command. "'A mother,' he explained, "'is a kangaroo ship, a dry dock ship for salvage and repair of submarines. "'Yes, we'll fit you out.' Sir Lyster looked chagrined. He had found some difficulty in mastering naval technicalities. When war broke out, he was directing a large dock from which vast numbers of troops were shipped to France. He had shown such administrative genius that Mr. Llewellyn John had selected him for the post of First Lord of the Admiralty, with results that satisfied everyone, even the Sea Lords. John Dean then proceeded to indicate the nature of the alterations he would require made in the vessel, showing a remarkable knowledge of the British type of mother ship. "'You ought either to be shot as a spy or made first sea lord,' said Sir Bridgman, looking up from a diagram that John Dean had produced. "'The Hun'll try to do the shooting, and as for my becoming sea lord, I should be sorry for some of the plugs here.' John Dean's thoroughness impressed his three hearers. Everything had been foreseen, even the spot where the destroyer was to be based. The small island of Auchinleck possessed a natural harbor of sufficient size for the mother ship to enter, after which the entrance was to be guarded by a defensive boom as a safeguard against U-boats. John Dean explained that a month or five weeks must elapse before the destroyer would be ready for action. In about three weeks she could be at Auchinleck crossing the Atlantic under her own power. Another week or ten days would be required for refitting and taking in stores. When you've delivered the goods, you can quit, and I shall be pleased to see your boys again in four months. John Dean regarded his listeners with the air of a man who had just thrown a bombshell and is conscious of the fact. 
Four months? ejaculated Sir Lyster. Yep, he uttered the monosyllable in a tone that convinced at least one of his listeners that expostulation would be useless. But, protested Sir Lyster, how shall we know what is happening? You won't, was the laconic reply. But, began Sir Lyster again. If no one knows what is happening, interrupted John Dean, no one can tell anyone else. Surely, Mr. Dean, said Sir Lyster with some asperity in his voice, you do not suspect the War Cabinet, for instance, of divulging secrets of national importance. I don't suspect the War Cabinet of anything, was the dry retort, not even of trying to win the war. John Dean looked straight into Sir Lyster's eyes. There was an awkward pause. "'Who's going to guarantee that the War Cabinet doesn't talk in its sleep?' he continued. "'I'm not out to take risks. If this country doesn't want my boat on my terms, then I shan't worry, although you may,' he added as an afterthought. "'No, sir,' he banged his fist on the table vehemently, "'this is the biggest thing that's come into the war so far, and I'm not going to have anyone monkeying about with my plans. I'm going to have a written document that I've got a free hand.' Otherwise, I don't deal. That's understood. But, began Sir Lyster once more. Excuse me, Grain, broke in Sir Bridgman. May I suggest that, as we are all keenly interested parties, Mr. Dean might give us his reasons? Sure, said John Dean, without waiting for Sir Lyster's reply. In Canada, a man gets a job because he's the man for that job. Leastwise, if he's not, he's fired. Here, I'll auction that half the big jobs are held by mutts whose granddads had a pleasant way of saying how'd you do to a prince. If any of them came around, you'd have me skippin' like a scalded cat. And when I'm like that, I'm liable to say things. I'm my own man, and my own boss, and I take a man's size in most things. I'm too old to feel meek at the sight of gold bands. I want to feel kind to everybody, and I find I can do that in this country better when everybody keeps out of my way. John Dean paused, and the others looked at each other, a little nonplussed how to respond to such directness. It's been in my head fillin' quite a while to tell you this, and John Dean suddenly smiled, one of those rare smiles that seemed to take the sting out of his words. I'd be real sorry to hurt anybody's feelings, he added, but we've got different notions of things in Kanda. It was Sir Bridgman who eased the situation. If ever you want a second in command, I'm your man, he laughed. Straight talk makes men friends, and if we do wrap things up a bit more here, we aren't so thin-skinned as not to be able to take it from the shoulder. What do you say, Grain? Yes, certainly said Sir Lyster, with unconvincing hesitation. "'You were mentioning spies,' said Admiral Hayworth. "'So would you if they'd plagued you as they've plagued me,' said John Dean. "'They've already stolen three sets of plans.' Three sets of plans?' cried Sir Lyster, starting up in alarm. John Dean nodded as he proceeded to relight the stump of his cigar. "'One set in Toronto, one on the steamer, and the other from my room at the Ritzton.' "'Good heavens!' exclaimed Sir Lyster in alarm. "'What is to be done?' "'Oh, I've got another three sets,' said John Dean calmly. Sir Lyster looked at him as if doubtful of his sanity. "'Don't you worry,' said John Dean imperturbably. One set of plans was of the U-1. 
the first boat the Germans built. The second set was of the U-2, and the third of the U-9. Sir Bridgman's laugh rang out as he thumped the table with his fist. "'Splendid!' he cried. Sir Leicester sank back into his chair with a sigh of relief. "'By the way, Dean,' said Sir Bridgman casually, "'suppose the destroyer was, uh, lost, and you with her?' I've arranged for a set of plans to be delivered to the First Lord, whoever he may be at the time, said John Dean. Good, said Sir Bridgman. You think of everything. We shall have you commanding the Grand Fleet before the war's over. Sir Leicester said nothing. He did not quite relish the qualification, whoever he may be at the time. About the spies, he said after a pause, I think it would be advisable to arrange for your protection. Not on your life cried John Dean with energy. I don't want any policeman following me around. I've got my own. Well, he added, I've fixed things up all right, and if the worst comes to the worst, well, there aren't many men in this country that can beat John Dean with a gun. Now it's up to me to make good on this proposition. He looked from one to the other, as if challenging contradiction. Finding there was none, he continued, but there are a few things that i want before i can start in and then you won't see me for dust you get me he looked suddenly at sir leicester we'll do everything in our power to help you mr dean said sir leicester reaching for a clean sheet of paper from the rack before him well i've got it all figured out here said john dean taking a paper from his jacket pocket first i want a written understanding signed by you turning to Sir Leicester, and Mr. Llewellyn John, that I'm to have four months to run the destroyer with no one butting in. Sir Leicester nodded and made a note. Next, continued John Dean, I want a mothership fully equipped with stores and fuel sufficient for four months. Again Sir Leicester inclined his head and made a note. I'll give you a schedule of everything I'm likely to want. Then I want an understanding that if anything happens to me, the command goes to Blake and then to Quinton. If I don't get these things, he announced with decision, I'll call a halt right here. I think you can depend upon Sir Leicester doing all you want, Mr. Dean, said Sir Bridgman. And when you see the way he does it, perhaps you'll have a better opinion of the Admiralty. Sir Leicester smiled slightly. He had already determined to show John Dean that nowhere in the world was there an organization equal to that of the Admiralty Vittling and Stores Departments. You help John Dean, and he's with you till the cows come to roost, was the response. And now, he added shrewdly, you'd better get the cables to work and find out something about me. Something about you? queried Sir Leicester. You're not going to trust a man because he talks big. I'll gamble on that. Well, you'll learn a deal about John Dean, and now it's time you got a rustle on. In all probability, our intelligence department knows all about you by now, Mr. Dean, said Sir Bridgman with a laugh. It's supposed to be fairly up to date in most things. Well, said John Dean, as he leaned back in his chair, puffing vigorously at his cigar, you've treated me better than I expected, and you won't regret it. Remembering's my long suit. I don't want any honor of glory out of this stunt. I just want to get the job done. If there are any garters or collars going around, you may have em. Personally, I don't wear em. Garters, I mean. A couple of rubber bands are good enough for me. 
Sir Bridgman laughed. Sir Lyster smiled indulgently, and Admiral Hayworth rose to go. "'There's only one thing more. I want a room here, and someone to take down letters.' "'I will tell my secretary to arrange everything,' said Sir Lyster. "'You have only to ask for what you require, Mr. Dean.' "'Well, that's settled,' said John Dean, rising. "'Now it's up to me, and if the destroyer doesn't give those Huns merry hell, then I'm green goods.' And with this enigmatical utterance he abruptly left the room, with a nod and a see you all in the morning. As the door closed, the three men gazed at each other for a few seconds. "'An original character,' said Sir Lyster indulgently. "'Going, Hayworth?' he inquired, as Admiral Hayworth moved towards the door. "'Yes, I've hardly touched the day's work yet,' was the reply. "'Never mind,' said Sir Bridgman. "'You've done the best day's work you're likely to do during this war.' "'I think I agree with you,' said Admiral Hayworth, as he left the room. "'Well, Grain, what do you think of our friend John Dean?' inquired Sir Bridgman, as he lighted a cigarette. He's rather abrupt, said Sir Lyster, hesitatingly. But I think he's a sterling character. You're right, said Sir Bridgman heartily. I wish we had a dozen John Deans in the service. When the colonies do produce a man, they do the thing in style. And Canada has made no mistake about John Dean. He's going nearer to win the war than any other man in the Empire. Ah, your incurable enthusiasm, smiled Sir Lyster. What I like about him, remarked Sir Bridgman, is that he never waits to be contradicted. He certainly does seem to take everything for granted, said Sir Lyster, with a note of complaint in his voice. The man who has all the cards generally does, said Sir Bridgman dryly. Dean will always get there, because he has no axe to grind, and the only thing he respects is brains. That is why he snubs us all so unmercifully he added with a laugh that always made Sir Lyster wish he wouldn't. "'Now, I want to consult you about a rather embarrassing question that's on the paper for Friday,' said Sir Lyster. Unconscious that he was forming the subject of discussion with the heads of the Admiralty, John Dean, on leaving the First Lord's room, turned to the right and walked quickly in the direction of the main staircase. As he reached a point where the corridor was intersected by another running at right angles, the sudden opening of a door on his left caused him to turn his head quickly. A moment later there was a feminine cry and a sound of broken crockery, and John Dean found himself gazing down at a broken teapot. Oh! He looked up from the steaming ruin of newly brewed tea into the violet eyes of the girl who had directed him to the Admiralty. He noticed the purity of her skin the redness of her lips, and the rebelliousness of her corn-colored hair, which seemed to refuse all constraint, clung about her head and little wanton tendrils. "'That's my fault,' said John Dean, removing his hat. "'I'm sorry.' "'Yes, but our tea,' said the girl, in genuine consternation. "'We're rationed, you know.' "'Rationed?' said John Dean. "'Yes, we only get two ounces a week each.' she said, with a comical look of despair. "'Gee!' cried John Dean. Then he asked suddenly, "'What are you?' The girl looked at him in surprise, a little stiffly. "'Can you type? Never mind about the tea.' "'But I do mind about the tea.' She found John Dean's manner disarming. "'I take it you're a stenographer. 
Now tell me your name. I'll see about the tea. He had whipped out a notebook and pencil. Hurry, I've got a cable to send. Seeing that she was reluctant to give her name, he continued, Never mind about your name. Be in the first lord's room tomorrow at eleven o'clock. I'll see you there. And with that he turned quickly, resumed his hat, and retraced his steps. Without knocking, he pushed open the door of Mr. Blair's room, walked swiftly across, and opened the door leading to that of the First Lord. "'Here,' he cried, "'where can I buy a pound of tea?' If John Dean had asked where he could borrow an ichthyosaurus, Sir Leicester and Sir Bridgman could not have gazed at him with more astonishment. "'You can't,' said Sir Bridgman, at length, his eyes twinkling as he watched the expression on Sir Leicester's face. "'Can't?' cried John Dean. "'Tea's rationed. Two ounces a week,' explained Sir Bridgman. "'Anyhow, I've got to buy a pound of tea. I've just smashed up the teapot of a girl in the corridor.' "'I'm afraid it's impossible,' said Sir Leicester, with quiet dignity. "'Impossible,' said John Dean irritably. "'Here am I, giving more than a million dollars to the country, and I can't get a pound of tea. I'll see about that.' She'll be here in this room tomorrow at eleven o'clock. And with that, the door closed and John Dean disappeared. I've told a girl to be here at eleven o'clock tomorrow. She's going to be my secretary, he explained to Mr. Blair as he passed through his office. Mr. Blair blinked his eyes vigorously. He had seen Sir Leicester and Admiral Hayworth leave the Admiralty with John Dean. He gathered that they had had a long interview with the Prime Minister. Then they had returned again, and, for two hours, had sat in consultation with the first sea-lord. Now the amazing John Dean had made an appointment to meet some girl in the first lord's room at eleven o'clock the next morning. As John Dean left the admiralty, puffing clouds of blue content from his cigar, the shifty-eyed man, in a grey suit, who had been examining the Royal Marine statue, drew a white handkerchief with a flourish from his pocket, and proceeded to blow his nose vigorously. The act seemed to pass unnoticed, save by a young girl sitting on a neighbouring seat. She immediately appeared to become greatly interested in the movements of John Dean whilst the man in the grey suit walked away in the direction of Birdcage Walk. "'Where's the tea?' was the cry with which Dorothy West was greeted as she entered the room she occupied with a number of other girls after her encounter with John Dean. "'It's in the corridor,' she replied. "'Oh, go and get it. There's a dear. I'm simply parched,' cried Marjorie Rogers, a pretty little brunette at the further corner." "'It's all gone,' said Dorothy West. "'A hun just knocked it out of my hand. "'He smashed the teapot.' "'Smashed the teapot!' cried several girls in chorus. "'Oh, Wessie!' wailed the little brunette. "'I shall die.' "'Why did you let him do it?' asked a fair girl with white eyelashes and glasses. "'I didn't,' said Dorothy. "'He just barged into me and knocked the teapot out of my hand.' and then made an assignation for eleven o'clock to-morrow in the first lord's room an assignation the first lord's room cried miss cunliffe who by virtue of a flat chest a pair of round glasses and an uncompromising manner made an ideal supervisor she was known as old goggles what do you mean miss west exactly what i say miss cunliffe he asked me if i was a stenographer and then said that I was to see him at eleven o'clock tomorrow morning in the First Lord's room. 
What do you think I had better do? Who is he? What is he? Do tell us, Wessie dear, cried Marjorie Rogers excitedly. Well, I should think he's either a madman or else he's bought the Admiralty, said Dorothy West, her head on one side as if weighing her words before uttering them. He's the man I saw this morning with Sir Lyster Grain and Admiral Hayworth, going to call on the Prime Minister. At least I suppose they were. They went up the steps into Downing Street. But ought I to go at eleven o'clock, Miss Cunliffe? she queried. I'll make inquiries, said Miss Cunliffe. I'll see Mr. Blair. Perhaps he's mad. But what are we going to do about our tea? wailed Marjorie. I'd sooner lose my character than my tea. Miss Rogers, said Miss Cunliffe, whose conception of supervisorship was that she should oversee the decorum as well as the work of the other occupants of the room. I believe she did it on purpose, said she of the white eyelashes spitefully to a girl in a velvet blouse. You had better brew tomorrow's tea today, Miss West, said Miss Cunliffe. Yes, do. There's a darling, cried Marjorie. I simply can't wait another five minutes. Why, I couldn't lick a stamp to save my life. Borrow number thirteen's pot when they've finished with it, and pinch some of their tea if you can, she added. And Dorothy West went out to interview the guardian of number thirteen's teapot. End of chapter two. Recording by William Tomko.